Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 199. Uh, We're going to talk about whether maybe, possibly, the very best van for you, the one that you should be heading down the road in, or rather with, is a trailer. We're also going to talk about two different tech talks, winter food and a dangerous monitor, a product review of an ottoman cover that has another use, and a place to visit that no one discovered until 1932, and I'll explain why that's significant when we get there. Folks, thank you very much for listening, and I'm sorry that this episode is late, and I'm sorry that my voice is not doing well, because I'm sick, and I'm tired, (laughs) and I'm here, which is the most important thing, and we are going to get this done. So, if you listen to my weird bonus podcast that I did earlier this week, I have spent the last week going from sitting on my couch watching YouTube videos to delivering an Airstream trailer over a thousand miles to our river property that we called Tiki Bagoland. You can listen to that story if you go back to the bonus episode, but that whole entire experience has me thinking about trailers, which is hardly (laughs) of any surprise. And no, folks, I am not giving up van life and becoming an Airstream princess or anything like that. That is not what's happening here. This Airstream is basically going to serve as a tiny house for us on our river property. However, if you are somebody who travels around in an Airstream, can you be said to be doing van life? Well, I've always been uh, a believer in the big steel, or in this case, aluminum tent, that van life has room for everybody. As long as you're traveling and living in a vehicle, heck, you can be part of van life. I mean, last time I did an actual real episode, I talked about schoolies, school buses. They're not vans. So if they're part of van life, I think trailers can be too. I think an Airstream is maybe not the best example of this, but anyway... Let's talk about the realities of why you should and shouldn't have a travel trailer or a camping trailer as your vehicle of choice if you want to hit the road. First, we actually have to make a distinction here, and this isn't a common distinction, but there are travel trailers and there are camping trailers. And the really basic difference between the two is how well they're built. And so far as I know, the only company that still uses the term travel trailer is actually Airstream. Airstream has this reputation of being very high quality, and mostly that is to justify their incredibly high price. Airstreams are very, very expensive trailers. But there are many other much, much less expensive trailers that can suit your needs, but many of them are called camping trailers. And part of that is that a camping trailer won't necessarily be suitable for all four seasons, where a travel trailer will. For example, and again, Airstream, because that's what I'm thinking about, they have heaters in their tanks. Their tanks are all enclosed. When you turn on the heat, the heat heats the tanks too, so you can use it in the winter down to, you know, a reasonable temperature, maybe 25 degrees Fahrenheit or, you know, negative 5 or so. You're not going to be doing too well in these things in negative 40, which is the one temperature I don't have to translate. 
But why wouldn't you consider a trailer? I mean, let's think about this. Let's say you're a dreamer, you're listening to this podcast and watching YouTube, and you're just like, oh, someday I want to have a van of my own so I can hit the road and see all this amazing stuff that everybody's seeing and be completely free and live on my own terms and all those wonderful things that van life offers us. Well, you can actually do that in a trailer. And it doesn't even have to be a big one. I mean, the truth is that with the exception of a canvas or nylon tent, trailers are the cheapest way to do this. Now, all right, step back here. Just living in your car is the cheapest way to do this, because in order to utilize a trailer for this, you do need to have a vehicle, okay? So that is a pro and a con, because you will always have a vehicle with you when you are doing trailer life, if we're going to call it that. But you will also always have just a vehicle with you. You can take all that weight and your living stuff and separate it. Basically, you have a, a toad always with you, except in this case, the toad is the tow vehicle. And what is being towed is your trailer. I said that very strangely, but I, I hope that makes sense. The advantage is that you can park all your stuff in a place and then have a much smaller vehicle to go exploring in. So, for example, if you want to do a lot of off-roading... Well, yeah, that, that's a thing that van lifers do, but it's a little bit of a problem because the most off-road worthy vans are nowhere near as off-road worthy as, say, a Jeep or a pickup truck that's been configured to go off-road. So you have a compromise there, but if you have a trailer, well, you can tow it with a Jeep or a, a pickup truck and then take that off-road and you don't have to worry about damaging you know your bed your sink your toilet your collection of cds or whatever the heck you have in there so that is a big advantage however that's also a disadvantage because if you have a van and this is one of the things i really like about vans it's all with you all the time and, uh, you know, an example here is like, let's say you wanted to go out into the Striped Butte in Death Valley, which is a place I like to visit. Geologist's cabin is there. I really like that. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting space to be. There's, a, there's a, a spring that's full of bees and frogs. I don't know how the frogs got there. Uh, there are burrows. It's a nice place to be. You would not want to tow your trailer out there unless you've got a super off-road trailer, which they do make some pop-up trailers and some teardrops that are really rugged. This isn't the kind of place you want to take your trailer, but you can easily get out there in any four-wheel drive vehicle or any high-clearance vehicle. It doesn't even have to be four-wheel drive. The problem is, where do you put your trailer when you head out there? This is a fairly rural place. There's not much around. I mean, go ahead and look up Shoshone, California, because that's one of the entrances to this place. I don't know where you're going to leave your trailer. I mean, you could, like, leave it at the trailhead, but leaving an unaccompanied trailer at a trailhead doesn't sound like a great idea to me. So that is a disadvantage for trailers, is that in order to use your vehicle without the trailer, you have to leave your trailer behind. It's easy if you've got a campsite set up, but if you don't, that can be a problem. And before we get too far, let's talk about the largest, biggest, hugest advantage to trailers, and that is they're cheap. They're cheap. For $10,000, you can get a perfectly serviceable trailer that has a bathroom and a shower and a table and a stove and a furnace. All that stuff, it probably will work, <laughs> maybe, and it's only $10,000. So if you have a vehicle that can tow a couple thousand pounds you are $10,000 away from having the complete package. That's a lot more difficult to do with any other type of vehicle. Like if you're going to do a van or buy a schoolie, 
Yeah, you could do it for $10,000, but you have to do all the work. In this case, it's just done for you. You just hook it up. However, if you are driving with a trailer, you will notice that it is a lot different than just driving your car. So I'm in an interesting situation right now, right? I, I bought a, uh, a Ram 1500, a 2018 Ram 1500 with a 5.7 liter V8 Hemi in it because, you know, you have to emphasize the Hemi for some reason. It is a great truck. I like it a lot. I just drove it uh, a couple hours yesterday, and at highway speeds, I got about 25 miles a gallon in this gasoline truck. It is a lot cheaper per mile for me to drive this truck than it is to drive my Sprinter, my camper, my ambulance that I've been building out forever. And it's a lot cheaper. It's like 25% cheaper. That's even more than that, I think. I'll have to do the math, but I'm not going to do it right now. However, when I hook the trailer up to that... I get 10 miles a gallon. Trailers can significantly reduce your gas mileage. So doing a lot of miles towing a trailer is not as pleasant or as cost-effective as doing a lot of miles in a van or some other built-out vehicle. So I'm in this weird situation where if I build out my truck to be a little truck camper, then it will be a lot cheaper than driving my Sprinter, and I won't have as much... Anyway, I'm getting far afield here, but it is tricky. You have to decide what your priorities are and then pick the best vehicle for you and of course one of those priorities is money trailers win there trailers also win on space you're going to have a lot more space in a trailer than you're going to have in a van i mean unless you get the tiniest little trailer but honestly even my scamp 13 has more space in it than my sprinter and that was a five thousand dollar trailer it's a big space, and I can tow it with anything. I mean, I, do, I tow that with the Sprinter. I'll, I'll tow it with the truck now. But you can tow that with almost any car. It only weighs about 1,200 pounds. However, and this is true for just about everything that's not a self-build, they don't build stuff really well. I mean, this Airstream that is supposed to be well, the highest build quality ever, I, I mean, it, it's, it's good. It's, it's pretty good quality. But, you know, when I opened the door after getting to where I was going... The vents had fallen down out of the ceiling. Some of the drawers were open. One of the walls is loose. There's water mysteriously coming from the faucet, even though the pump isn't on and there's no pressure in the system. I don't know what that's about. I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, it's an RV. And RVs just typically aren't built as well as bespoke custom vans that either you build out or a professional builder will build out. And I would love to see a comparison between, say, a Winnebago built-out van, a Class B, and a van built by a professional van builder who does nothing else. And I'm pretty sure the professional van builder is going to do a much better job. So when you get a trailer... Well, you're dealing with that. You're dealing with stapled particle board and MDF and flimsy materials and stuff like that. So, which, you know, is fine. But if you're going to spend a lot of time in these things, that stuff's going to wear out. Now, here is an option that kind of crosses all the worlds, and that is to get a utility trailer and build it out yourself. You can get a utility trailer for four or $5,000, single axle, just a trailer that you can stand up in and it has nothing it's just walls and if you're lucky it's lined with plywood and you can do whatever you want with that and honestly if you threw a couple thousand dollars into that you could have a super nice build for seven thousand or eight thousand dollars you can have solar on the roof you can have water if you want you can have a toilet you can have a shower all that stuff you just need a vehicle to tow it with but it's a little risky because and this is the last thing i will mention about trailers for this episode driving them can be dangerous. 
trailers make your vehicle unpredictable, especially if you build out your own trailer, because you're not an engineer, most likely. I mean, I'm sure there's an engineer or two listening to the podcast, but if you're not one of those two people, you don't really know how to do the weight distribution properly. I mean, you don't know how to do it in your van either, but it's much more important in your trailer. You have a tongue weight that has to have 10 to 20% of the weight of the entire vehicle up front. And you might know that. So you say, oh, I'll put my batteries up there. I'll put my propane and water up there, which is where they are in most trailers. And that's why. But you may not realize that over the course of time, you end up putting more and more and more and stuff in the back and you've thrown off your center of gravity in the trailer and then you go down the road and you start the fishtail of death and your trailer picks up your car and throws it off a bridge, which is pretty dramatic, but it's not that far off from what can happen. So driving a trailer... Even a properly configured trailer is a lot more work. It takes a lot more effort and you have to know what you're doing a lot more than driving a single vehicle. And I think that's one of the reasons schoolies are so popular because you get it all in one thing and a school bus, despite its size, is actually pretty easy to drive. Once you get used to the size, you just point it and it goes there and it's not going to sway all over the place. And yes, wind might affect it and so on and so forth. But honestly, next to a trailer, it's an easier thing to drive. So, hey, there's some food for thought. I think trailers are underlooked in van life. And I know a lot of people, well, that's not van life. That's RV life. Yeah, whatever. We're all on the same page here. I think you should consider a trailer and maybe it's not for you. And I totally understand that. See, van life is a mindset. It's not the vehicle you're using. There's nothing wrong with you having a Jeep and a trailer and calling it van life. Because it is. It's the same thing somebody in a built-out sprinter is going to be doing. You're going to go out in the BLM land and set up camp and go hiking. I mean, that's van life. Oddly, what van life is is the stuff that doesn't involve the van. (laughs) It's stuff the van lets you do. And a vehicle and a trailer can do that for you as well. So, just a thought. Let me know what you do. Tech Talk. I'm going to give you two tech talks for this episode and no tale from the road because I just did like an enormous tale from the road as a bonus episode. So we're going to do two tech talks. So I guess I should start with tech talk number one. So I've recommended uh, that there are certain kinds of food that you can leave in your rig over winter. Like let's say you don't do van life in the winter, you're going to park your rig. And, you know, you want to take out anything that's going to explode, right? So you don't want to leave any soda in there, any water, anything like that. But things like cans of soup and those Hormel complete meals and noodles and things like that, yeah, you can leave them in there because they're not going to explode. There's so much salt in those things that nothing happens. Uh, Glass containers, no, but basically all cans are fine. And honestly, I believe that. Except now I have found a problem with them that was a little unexpected. This is a a humid climate problem. So I have been using my vehicles in the winter. Um, So basically it's like 20 degrees out, but then, you know, I'll fire it up and get everything warmed up and hit the road. I went to Florida and I've been staying in the Tiki Bago in the winter conditions. And I leave the food in there because I always like to have some food no matter what. And what I noticed is nothing exploded. Nothing bad like that happened, but the food did freeze. So I basically had these little cans of ice in there, which isn't a problem in and of itself. But as you heat the rig back up, you have all these little blocks of ice in your van and they produce condensation. 
and then they rust. So I now have rusty can rings on my shelves in a couple of my vehicles. And those Hormel completes, which if you've not seen these things, they're like TV dinners that don't need to be frozen. That's all they are. They're not very good, but they're very, very handy and very convenient. Well, those froze, and then as they unfroze, they got all damp, and their cardboard coverings got soggy, and yeah. Uh, I don't know why I never had this happen before. I mean, this is the, it's not the first year I've done this, but it's the first year I've noticed the impact, and it may be because of weather conditions or whatever. So, if you're going to store winter food, just be aware that this can happen. A simple solution is to put a napkin under all your food that you're going to store like that. That would absorb the moisture and you wouldn't have any problem. Or just take that off your list. Don't leave any canned food or anything, anything squishy. Don't leave anything squishy in your van over winter. You know, spaghetti is not going to do anything except maybe attract rats. That's a whole separate problem. It's not going to, it doesn't care if it's frozen or not. It's not going to change. But anything with liquid in it, even if it won't explode, yeah, you can have the condensation problem. And, uh, yeah, not a big deal, but still not a great thing either. Tech Talk number two. This is a little bit of a strange one. And I should probably do a whole product review or something about this, but... I want to mention it because I almost died. <laughs> I'd rather I didn't die, and I'd rather you didn't die too, so I want to mention this. The Airstreams come with a rear-view camera. So I know most vehicles now have a rear-view camera, and most vans have them now, and if you don't have them, they're pretty easy to install. I've installed a bunch of them. But these wireless ones are actually pretty cool. So the Airstream has a wireless backup monitor. There's a camera permanently mounted to the back of the trailer. And then you have this wireless monitor that you bring into your tow vehicle and plug it into the cigarette lighter. And you press a button and it works. I mean, that's basically how it is. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But very clever, very simple. And it absolutely does what you would think. You turn it on and you see right out the back of the trailer. You would think that would be great. What a perfect safety thing. And that's what I thought too. And I thought, well, I might as well have it on all the time. Because then I can see, oh, is there somebody right behind me? You know, if I, if I want up going up a hill and is someone trying to make me get out of their way, whatever, you know. So I did that. And uh, I actually, it was hard to find another place to put a monitor in the, in the truck. But I did. I kind of wedged it into a cup holder and, you know, everything's fine. And as I'm driving along, I find myself in the left lane because I was passing a truck that was going up a hill. And I find that I want to go back over to the right lane. So I look at my mirrors, which are almost useless when I'm towing an Airstream because the Airstream's bigger than the truck. Towing mirrors are a good thing, and I didn't have them. But I have this monitor. So I look at the monitor, and everything looks clear. And I start gradually moving over to the right, leaving plenty of space between me and the truck. And I see a car squeeze into that little space in the monitor. And I'm like, holy cow, and I'm going to crush this car. So I grab the steering wheel, and I've towed enough to know not to jerk the steering wheel. But I kind of, as quickly as I can, merge back into the lane I was in. And then the car passes me on the left, right where it should have been. You see, I didn't realize that the monitor does not mirror the image. It shows the image as it is. And having driven vehicles now for 40 years, I'm conditioned to looking at mirrors and monitors being in reversed image. So that means that if I see something in the mirror or screen on the right, that's actually where it is. 
not on the left where this one truly was. I, you have to, it's a, it's a mirror math is a little weird. Um, even though things are reversed, something on the right is still on the right. <laughs> you have to but trust me on this. What happened was I saw a car that was on the left as though it was on the right, and I reacted to it as though it was on the right, and that was a very bad thing to do. Now, I, nothing bad happened. I knew enough to know that something was off, and I knew that all I had to do was go back into the lane that I was in, and everything would be fine, but it scared the crap out of me, and I'm amazed that this monitor doesn't have a switch to switch, to, to switch it to mirror or just have that be the default. I've I have seen backup cameras and vehicles have a switch between normal and mirror, but they've all been set to mirror and that's what I'm used to. So word to the wise, if you are working with any kind of backup camera that you're not familiar with, or especially one of these wireless ones, make sure the image is showing you what your brain thinks it is because you can get into serious trouble reacting to what you see if it's not actually what's actually there. Yikes. Product review. I have a cassette toilet in my van. And this is not a product review of that cassette toilet. This is a product review of an ottoman cover. Some of you have already figured out where I'm going with this. Others of you are wondering what the heck an ottoman cover is. Is this something that you would use to cover somebody from Constantinople? No, no, this is to cover a footstool that probably originated in the Ottoman Empire or who knows, but it is called an Ottoman. And they make these slip covers for them that are absolutely perfect for covering your cassette toilet. They're not made for that purpose, but I thought I'd give it a try and it is perfect. So now my cassette toilet that I don't have a drawer for in the ambulance, it just kind of hangs out. Now it's an ottoman. It's a footstool. It is a piece of furniture that doesn't scream, huh, he poops in here, doesn't he? And it's great. Uh, it's, it's kind of elasticy, and it just slips over there. It's super easy. It, 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 it makes a nice tight seat fitting. And I think if you wanted to, you could actually modify it by tacking in like a cushion into it. So then your your cassette toilet would, or you just work on a composting toilet too. I'm so, geez. This would work on a composting toilet too. Uh, basically anything that's kind of cube-shaped that you want to cover up. They come in all kinds of colors, but um, the size matters. There's three sizes, and the one I bought was small. So I'll, I'll give you the link. <laughs> the name of these on Amazon, of course, is Bifonvogel. That's B-I-F-A-U-N-V-O-G-E-L. Bifonvogel Ottoman Cover Square Velvet Storage Ottoman Slipcover Thick Stretch Footrest Footstool Covers Protector with Elastic Band Small Blue. I got the blue one because there's stuff that's blue in my ambulance and that's what I like, but they have orange and red and all the different shades of browns and all, you know, you can pick whatever color you want. And the best part is it's $12.39 and you can machine wash it. So I will have a link in the show notes. There's, there's a bunch of different sizes. Again, I got the small, and I have a full-size cassette toilet. I have the kind of cassette toilet that when you sit on it, you don't feel like you're, you're in like a, a, a child's potty. You, it's a regular seat, and small worked well for that. They do have measurements on here. So 
this I love it. I, it's great. I, I'm no longer kind of vaguely embarrassed by my cassette toilet. I now have an extra piece of furniture, and I can move it around in the van, and people can sit on it, or I can use it to put my feet on, or whatever. And it just looks a lot better. I'm not really big on how things look so much, but but heck, it makes me happy. Twelve ninety nine, buy von Vogel Ottoman cover from Amazon. Link in the show notes. A place to visit. I actually visited this place once, but it was at 6 p.m. and it was in December. And this place is completely worthless at 6 p.m. in December because you can't see anything. Honestly, if you do go here, you won't be able to see anything anyway. But you should still go because it's it's really amazing. It's 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 kind of astonishing. It's one of these places that will really make you wonder what you know about the world and what has gone on before you. And this place is the Blythe Intaglios. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But it's in Blythe, California, named after a man named Blythe who had great ambitions and yet very little success. Uh, And he didn't even know these were here. He lived his whole life in the... Well, he didn't live in the town, but he had this town named after him. And in his entire life... He never found out that these things were here. But some of you, many of you, possibly even most of you, are now wondering, what did he say? What's an intaglio? Is that like... An intaglio is a design incised or engraved into a material. (laughs) All right, that doesn't tell us much. Basically, if you carved your initials in a tree, you know, Jeff loves Jen, TLF, whatever... You have made an intaglio. And uh, yeah, I'm not asking you to drive out into the desert of California to see that specifically. No, this is more like Nazca. The Nazca Plains, remember them? And all those amazing things that are carved in the desert that you can only see from an airplane. And Von Daniken said that it was evidence of ancient astronauts because who else could see these? Clearly, the native peoples were making these things so that the astronauts would know where to land. Or, you know, maybe it was to please God who was sitting on a cloud and deciding where to throw a thunderbolt and decide, oh, all those people made me this nice hummingbird. I don't think I'll throw the thunderbolt at them. I don't know. But somebody, at some point, carved these eerie, gigantic human figures in the desert of Blythe, California. And another figure that is up for debate, and this is part of the fun. If you go there and visit this site with somebody, you get to have this discussion. There's two people and a horse. No, it's a dog. No, it's a deer. No, it's something else because if you can positively identify that animal as a horse then you have a date because there were no horses in north america until european invasion and that's not true there were horses in america before the ice age but by the time the ice age happened all the horses were gone and then the europeans brought them back so if that animal is a horse It was either made before the Ice Age or after Columbus got here. And then it could have been made by anybody. It could have been made by a farmer, not necessarily the natives who lived in the area. Some offshoot of the Paiutes lived in the area. However, the current scholarship is that this is from the prehistoric period, which means we don't know who made it. And indeed, the Paiutes themselves say, yeah, we know they're there, but we didn't do it. So nobody knows who made these things. 
and they're enormous, and you can't see them from the ground. It wasn't until 1932 that a pilot flying between Las Vegas and Blythe saw these things. Imagine that. You're just flying along. What the heck is that? And, and when I say these things are huge, I mean, they're, they're huge. One of them is 171 feet long. That's 52 meters. And the only way you can see them is from the air. You can drive out there, and there's a little parking area, and you can walk around them. And, and fortunately, they're somewhat protected today. From the air, you can see that that wasn't always the case. There's tire tracks across them. Some lovely person did donuts on one of the figures, you know, whatever. But fortunately, most of it is still there. You just can't see it from the ground. But if you had a drone, and there is drone footage on YouTube, so people have done this. Again, check your local laws to see if you can legally fly a drone here. Uh, you get a really nice view of these things. And the drones also show that at some point in history, and I don't know when, but modern history, people like kind of cordoned off the area. And you can see the difference in the area that's cordoned off versus the area that was just left to normal human use. It, it, it looks different. Now, these were made not by the piling up of rocks, as, in many, as many of these are made, but these were made by digging. They actually dug into the earth, and that's why they're called intaglios. And it turns out they're not the only ones in the area. There are at least 200 in the area of all different shapes and sizes. I mean, and they're basically like petroglyphs, except they're, they're dug into the ground. What's interesting is some of the patterns, though. I mean, I don't mean the patterns that were carved. I mean the patterns of what's found. For example, the only ones that depict humans are along the Colorado River. Now, why would that be? I don't know. Uh, it's interesting to think about. I do know that this area once flooded all the time, and these figures are carved at the highest point, like kind of on a mesa overlooking the river. So you imagine for native folks way back then, floods would have been the major events in their lives. I mean, their entire landscape would change from just barren desert to suddenly water, water everywhere. That had to make an impact on them. I mean, it makes an impact on us today. So maybe these are simply drawings to depict their awe at that event. A lot of researchers think they're for ceremonial purposes because that's kind of the default. <laughs> I swear if people from a thousand years come visit Chicago and look at the graffiti and the tagging on some of our railroad bridges, they're going to say that those were charms to protect the passengers on the railway or, or whatever. I mean, I don't know. Not to, <laughs> not to Dane archaeologists. I know you guys are actually quite scholarly, but I do find that one explanation used maybe a little too often. Anyway, check it out. Blythe in Taglios, a place you can visit. It is California Historic Landmark number 101. I'll have a link in the show notes. And it is not far from Needles which also has one of these. I mean, heck, you could do a whole tour of these in the Southwest, and you won't even have to go to Peru. Resource recommendation. I have already done this one, and recently, and I'm going to do it again, because one of the things I am very, very interested in is finding ways to stay awake on long drives. I've often mentioned that one of the reasons I wanted to do a built-out van is because I wanted to be able to take naps on the road because I do have a hard time staying awake. I have a lot of strategies about it. I talked about embarrassing yourself as a way to stay awake. That works well. Singing loudly to music, doesn't matter if it's good or not, that can help. But what's helped me lately, and not only that, it's helped me pass time very, very effectively, 
is The Lateral Podcast with Tom Scott. I am not bringing this up again simply because they used one of my puzzles on the show. <laughs> That's not why. No, I'm telling you because seriously, this is, this is a lifesaver. On this most recent trip, I drove from Lakeland, Florida, back to Illinois in two days. Basically, I had a six-hour nap, and that was it. I, I've talked about these long drives before and how they're stupid and you shouldn't do it, but anyway, here I am, still doing it. And there were times when I felt sleepy, and I started to look around like, well, where can I park? And now, towing a trailer, back to the trailer thing, it's a lot harder to find a place to park with a trailer, and it wasn't like I could just pull over into some little town and take a nap in the McDonald's parking lot, because I'm towing 27 feet of trailer. So I put Lateral Podcast on, and, and this podcast is puzzles. It, that's all it is. It's puzzles. There's no competition. It's like trivia, but in a way, it's exactly the opposite of trivia, because a team of influencers, basically, that's what they are. They tend to be young people who are on YouTube or Instagram or whatever are presented with a puzzle and asked to figure it out. For example, a man walks into a bar and asks the bartender if they serve seagull meat. The bartender says, well, yes, we do. The man orders the seagull meat, takes a single bite, says thank you, goes into the alley, and kills himself. Why? That is a classic lateral thinking puzzle. And that's what this show is. Except it's mostly not hypotheticals or made-up stories like that one. It's actual things that actually happened. And when you do find out the answer, it's just mind-blowing. And for me, when I'm playing along with people in the podcast, it helps me stay awake and it makes the time just fly by. And there's, a, there's over 100 episodes of these now, and I'm really going to be sad when I've gone through the backlog. So anyway, if you haven't listened to... Lateral with Tom Scott podcast. Give it a try. It, it, even and it's a, you know what's really good about this? It's a podcast that you can listen to by yourself or with other people and play along. It's the perfect podcast for traveling down the road, in my opinion. And I say that as I'm telling you that in a podcast that I've made for traveling down the road. So give it a shot. Search for Lateral Podcast or Lateral with Tom Scott and you'll find it wherever you find your podcasts. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 199. I am struggling here, but I think we got it done, and that's because of you guys. Thank you to everybody who has donated at buymeacoffee.com slash go. There are no ads in this podcast, and you have motivated me to push through this evil illness that I have to get an episode out. So everybody owes you some thanks, and I certainly do. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it is done.